Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, July 6th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Representative Benny Thompson leads the House Committee to investigate the January 6th riot. Then the Mississippi legislature prepares for redistricting and a look at COVID-19 genetic analysis. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson will lead the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th Capitol riot. As committee chair, Thompson heads a panel of six other Democrats and one Republican thus far appointed by House Speaker Pelosi. Minority Leader McCarthy has not yet made the five additional member recommendations to which he is entitled. The role of Congress in investigations of the Capitol riots has, for months now, been the subject of a bitter partisan feud. Speaking with MPB's Rob Lane, Congressman Thompson reflects on his role in early bargaining. As you know, I led the Democratic negotiations around trying to come up with a bipartisan commission to look into the events around January 6th. We worked it out, developed what I thought was a good agreement with Republicans And we got every Democrat and 35 Republicans who supported it. But Minority Leader McConnell told the Senate Republicans, as a personal favor to me, I want you to vote against it. And so, therefore, we did not get the 60 votes necessary to defeat it. And so Speaker Pelosi said the six weeks that we have waited on the Senate to say that they would look at it, come back with something, has been long enough. And so she recommended a select committee made up of 
eight persons selected by her and five recommended and approved by her from the Republicans. As you know, seven members of the commission are Democrats and one, a Republican, Liz Cheney, make up what is a, a quorum of this select committee. This committee has two main purposes, to investigate and report upon the facts, circumstances, and causes relating to January 6th attack and relating to the interference with the peaceful transfer of power that includes identifying and influencing factors that fomented such an attack. The second thing we have to do is to examine the evidence developed by relevant federal, state, and local governmental agencies to this terrorist attack in a manner that builds upon other related investigations to avoid unnecessary duplication of effort. Now, what that means is, as you know, we've had a number of hearings by other committees since January 6th, but this is the first focus committee solely on January 6th. We will take what they have already put together in their respective committee and use that as additional information to produce our report. So we look forward. Uh, we had a series of focus meetings. We plan to call members of the Capitol Police first. They've not had a chance to testify, either in public or private, about what they experienced on January 6th. We also want to bring other employees, the administrative staff, the congressional staff, the support staff, who also was trapped into the Capitol on that day, as well as other members of Congress who might want to testify. That will be our first reach. But in addition to that, we have to hire professional staff. That professional staff would be the best that we can identify to help us do our job. And right now, there's not, no sacred cows around this issue that we won't look at. That's our charge in H.R. 503, and we expect to carry it out. When you say no secret cows, that sounds to me a little bit like a euphemism. Are there any particular individuals that you would consider calling that may be uh, highly controversial or potentially well, highly ranking no, figures no. of the Republican Party? Well, I, I, I look at it differently. If our professional investigators come back and say, based on our review of the facts and circumstances, this individual needs to come before either the committee or come before investigators and answer some questions. And I think for us to really do our job, we have to just say, we'll follow the facts. And those facts are the ones that our professional investigators and researchers uh, come back to us with. Would you call the minority leader if that's where the investigation led you? You know, I would just say that we will look at the facts and make a decision based on what those facts say. Our conversation with Representative Benny Thompson continues on tomorrow's show. 
Coming up, Mississippi lawmakers prepare to carve the state into new congressional districts. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A bipartisan joint committee of state legislators met for the first time last week to discuss redistricting in Mississippi. Later on, they'll be tasked with redrawing Mississippi's House and Senate districts using data from the 2020 census. MPB's Ashley Norwood spoke with Natchez Democrat Robert Johnson, who's currently House Minority Leader. He offers insight into how the process works. Every 10 years with the decennial census, as populations change, what the legislature in each state has to do is to go in and look at the districts that are drawn for congressional districts and for state legislative districts. And so our job is to go in and draw those districts. And we constitutionally, we are bound to make sure that people are not discriminated or disadvantaged pursuant to race or, or gender or sex. So before this year, before this 10-year cycle, we were always governed by the Voting Rights Act that is not long, no longer in place. That would have required that anything we passed would have had to be pre-cleared through the Justice Department. We don't have that tool in place now. And so what we try to do with our limited leverage that we have, have as Democrats is, is to try to do as much as we can to maximize the opportunity to create districts that are more balanced and that are less partisan. As we go through this process, what you're supposed to do is look through the district, look look through the population, look through each congressional district and figure out where people live and where they are. And then you individually, in terms of parties, sit down and draw districts and then come back into a room and meet with the other side and try to figure out what you can agree on. So your district, do you have any particular concerns about your district or how it may be impacted by this process? As a Democratic leader, I try to take myself out of it in terms of my personal. I mean, if, if I had to choose a personal path, I would I would love to have as much of my district concentrated in Adams County as possible. Whatever would lead to me having the biggest advantage of being elected, I would do that. But that's not what the that's not the key. The point is to try to do what I can to make sure that we maximize the number of people who are elected to reflect again the personality and the needs of that district. And so in this process, what I'll try to do is look at the state of Mississippi as a whole. And if it means sacrificing something that would be to my advantage, that's my duty to do that. And, I, and that's what I encourage all my members to do. And to a man and woman, uh, everybody I've talked to is willing to do whatever they have to do to make sure that we, we achieve that goal. And that is to don't be selfish. Don't look at where, where, where do most of the people I know, I went to high school with, or people that I have, I go to church with, where do they live? Let me make sure I got this box in my district. And that's what people do, and we got to make sure that that doesn't happen. And, and what should happen is to make sure that we look at what's going to achieve a balance that creates an opportunity for us to do the best job for the people of the state of Mississippi. 
And you've talked about this throughout this interview so far, you know, like that electoral competitiveness or the term that I've, I've heard often gerrymandering. Um, yes. How have you I know you've been at the legislature for some years now. How how have you seen this play out in years past? And is there a, a different concern or a particular concern today around that issue? We have engaged in partisan gerrymandering uh, ever since I've been here. And we've been guilty on both sides of doing that. And that what I mean by partisan gerrymandering is that Democrats try to, try to draw districts that, that, that makes it as easy as possible for a Democrat to be elected. And Republicans try to draw districts that make it as easy as possible as Republicans to get elected. What you end up with are districts that are so polarized that you never create a situation where you have people there who can have a meeting of the minds. And so one of the things that has happened on the federal level is that in part of this federal legislation on voting rights that people have tried to pass was one of the one of the components was to do away with partisan gerrymandering. Republicans railed against that. They they objected to it. They didn't want to see it because what happened, one of the things that the Voting Rights Act protected was you had to maximize the ability of minorities and African-Americans to elect people that they chose. And so Republicans capitalized on that by cutting deals with a lot of people who represent African-American districts by saying, look, we can give you a 75% district, and we can, I can have a 75% district, and, I can, and we can elect people we want, and you can elect people you want. But what that, what that does is create districts that are just racially biased, and it doesn't create districts that are issue biased in terms of creating districts that Poor people are represented well, labor or working people are represented well, or the interests of education or roads and bridges or economic development are, are represented the way they should. And so people have taken advantage of it that way. Because the Voting Rights Act recognized that there's been a history of voting rights violations and discrimination at polling booths in the South and, and in other places in the country. And so they capitalized on that. And so all people for years concentrated on electing African-Americans. Well, now our job is not just to elect African-Americans, but to elect people who represent areas and issues that affect African-Americans and working people and other people of color and women and people who don't have the requisite amount of representation in the legislature. And so we have to get away from that and make sure that we don't do so much partisan gerrymandering as we've done before and make sure that we get away from that and create districts that are balanced. So when the legislature does complete the maps, then Governor Tay Reeves, does he have the power to either accept or, or deny the, the redrawing? Yeah, well, it's like any other piece of legislation. He can veto it or he can object to it. I mean, he can veto it. His, his objection would be a veto. That same mechanism is in place just like any other piece of legislation. What we don't have, is the Justice Department, federal Justice Department oversight that we've had before. We don't have to have preclearance. We don't have to show that we, you know, that it violates the Voting Rights Act. But what we're prepared to do, what and what I'm prepared to do, is continue to challenge it on a legal basis. Even though we don't have the Voting Rights Act in place, I will continue to uh, force the issue and be prepared along with whatever partners we have in place to challenge on whatever legal basis we need to any plan that I think a a partisan, unbalanced legislature like we have now. 
Anything I did not ask you, Representative, that you think is important to add before I let you go? Well, I, I would just say we get notices all the time about meetings, the legislature does, but I think it's important for the public to be engaged in this process and in every process in the legislature. This is Mississippi Public Radio. I would suggest that people who are listening call their legislature and make sure and implore them to make sure that uh, the legislature is, is compelled to give notice to the public, let them know when these meetings are going on. And I think it's important that the public be involved and voice their concerns about every issue, including redistricting. All right. Representative Robert Johnson of Natchez, Democratic leader in the House. Thank you again so much for your time. Well, thank you for calling me. Mississippi officials can expect to receive relevant census information this September. Coming up, we visit a COVID-19 genetic sequencing lab. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The growing prevalence of COVID-19 variant strains now dominate news coverage of the pandemic. Medical professionals say the ultra-transmissible Delta variant is most concerning, especially in poorly vaccinated places like Mississippi. The University of Mississippi Medical Center's Molecular and Genomics Core Facility is working to sequence the genetic material of Mississippi COVID-19 samples. That's to help the Department of Health better understand the proliferation of variant strains in the state. We sent reporter Kobe Vance to the UMMC facility to talk to a team of researchers involved in the project. We're in a little lab in the University of Mississippi Medical Center right now. Um, there's one section of the lab that has some storage units. It looks like several pieces of equipment that look like they're helping to identify samples. And then right now we're standing in a smaller room that has the vent hood. This is going to sound like a really dumb question, but <laughs> hear me out. Um, some people, when they hear DNA sequencing, they probably, I know visually in my head, I think, oh, it's a guy looking under a microscope and counting the number of you know things. That, that's not how it's done. Is that correct? Uh, no. Um, I can show you real quick, but yeah. just to go back, as my, my dad always said, there are no dumb questions, just dumb answers. So with that, where does that leave me? Okay. So you can just take a uh, quick look yeah. um, over here. And this is a sequencing instrument. We actually have three of them here. On the right, that's what we call kind of, I call that the, the baby instrument. And, and this is kind of like the, the mom, and this is kind of like the grandma, and then there's some bigger instruments. And Visually, it looks like we have computers and giant printers, but it's not printers. No. So uh, basically, the samples are, as I said, in a, uh, provided in a single tube, and the magic happens within this box, but it's very kind of a simple idea in that the sample is taken up through some pipes, kind of like fluidics, and then it ends up in what's called this flow cell. And on this flow cell, 
the samples and the individual fragments of the virus wash across and they bind to this. And then all of the important reagents and sequencing, all of the individual nucleotides wash across this in what we call cycles. And there's a signal that lights up when a particular nucleotide is, is found. And ultimately, this machine will then image this flow cell to identify all those millions of spots to determine the sequence. In some ways, it's not like a, an old professor looking through a microscope. It's a zoomer looking in a CDC camera that's taking the pictures, but a similar type of kind of concept. Could you walk through the process of whenever samples come into the lab, are y'all getting ready to test the samples? What, what do y'all, what's the process there? So the samples that we are getting are from our Department of Pathology here. So those are the samples that have been collected internally and externally, and they're actually doing an, an activation step to make the virus not pathogenic anymore. And then they're isolating the nucleic acid or the genetic material, in this case, of the RNA. And they do their preliminary tests, and then once they're finished with their tests, they transfer that material over to us here, where we will then identify the positive samples, and then we proceed with the, the procedure to develop uh, what we call our sequencing library. So a few days after they finish it is when the report you hear from Dr. Dobbs will include the data that, that they've right. collected. Partly. They're, Partly. They're, there are yeah. other partners. Yeah. They're also doing some yeah. sequencing at the Department of Health and I think maybe some other places across the state, but they uh, will usually aggregate that. And I think usually on Saturdays or at least once a week, they're reporting all of the new variants or the cumulative uh, uh, grouping of variants for, across the state. Now, would it be safe to say that y'all are one of the largest uh, sequencing people in the state? That's true. So when we started the project, there was uh, about you know, four, three or 400 samples from Mississippi out of 300,000 infections. So we've been able to quadruple that basically in the last four months. And uh, just one other thing to mention is, you know, the biosurveillance project is what we mostly talked about here with the Department of Health. Mm -hmm. But we also have this contract for the next year through the Center for Disease Controls, which will utilize some of the current sequencing samples, but also a large amount of samples that were archived since the start of the pandemic. And that may be not as useful now because the current variants are, are what drive potentially transmissibility, but understanding the, where the variants came from and the progression of new variants and what fell out and what new ones came in provides us a really deeper perspective of, of the pandemic from a molecular level. And hopefully that information can be used to inform, unfortunately, if there are future pandemics. Archive samples really help us flesh out the family tree. So it captures some of the grandparents and the great-great-grandparents of the current viruses. When it comes to safety, do you all have any measures in place to prevent these, these samples from possibly spreading to other people that are in the area? That's a very good question. I think pathology has to be, and those clinical people have to be much more cautious because they're dealing with live viral samples until they are deactivated in some way. By the time the samples come over to us, they are isolated nucleic acids. There's nothing left of, of the virus that would be infectious. 
However, just as a precaution, all of that work, working with the samples, are done under the biological safety hood. That way there is a physical barrier and separation from the, the science, research scientist working with the samples. And of course, everybody wears uh, personal protective equipment, gloves and lab coat to be extra cautious. And then uh, I guess the last thing is, where do y'all see this, this effort of identifying variants fitting into the larger battle against COVID-19 here in Mississippi? It provides fundamental information about what's causing the infection. So and the virus isn't just a single entity. There's lots of different versions of the virus out there. And so if, if the clinicians and the public health officials know what that is, then they can more effectively track the virus um, and hopefully stop it. Thank you all so much for y'all's time. I appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.